We are starting a new series this morning called the Summer Vacation. All right, how many guys, by show of hands, have plans for a summer vacation? Some of you. Excuse me, all right. I'm going to live vicariously through you this summer. I do not have plans for a summer vacation. Uh, one, because I'm remodeling a house, so every ounce, every penny of discretionary income I have is, uh, is going there. Uh, plus, I have four young children, and I'm just of the conviction that um, with four young children, there's no such thing as a vacation. All right, a vacation is a place of relaxation and rest, which from what I've been told doesn't happen until your children are, I don't know, 18, 19, 20. So uh, a vacation with children is just called a trip, is what I think is true. So I'm going to live vicariously through you guys that are, that are going on vacation. But um, what we're going to do in this series, so over the next few weeks, uh, is we are just going to kind of go on a biblical road trip of sorts. Uh, and we're going to look at some of the destinations in the Bible, some of the locations, uh, to kind of look at, okay, what are these places, right? What are these destinations? What are these locations? What do they, what do they tell us about God? And then, and then what does that mean for us, right? So we're, we're going to stop through at these different places. And, and what do these places show us or tell us or remind us uh, about who God is? And then what does that mean for us? And so we're going to start this morning um, in the beginning, right? Seems like an appropriate place to start. So let me read um, just a few verses here. Like I said, we're going to bounce around a little bit this morning, but we'll start in verses uh, 5 through 8 of Genesis chapter 2. So here's what uh, the author writes. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. All right, so here's... Here's the big kind of overarching point this morning, and then we're kind of built out under it. The, the big overarching point is that God prepares a place for us. Right, God prepares a place for us. And that's, verse 8 is kind of like the central verse in there, right? It says that God planted a garden in Eden. So you've got the Garden of Eden. God creates it, plants it, puts it there, creates it, establishes it. And it says, then he put uh, the man whom he had formed, he, he intentionally places the man there in the garden. Right, so God designs this place with the purpose of, of placing man there. Right, so the big idea is that God prepares a place for us. God prepares a place for his people. And this is a storyline. Uh, it starts here in Genesis, but really this is a storyline all throughout Scripture. Right, if you, you read through the whole Bible, God is constantly preparing a place or creating a place um, or promising a place for his people. It starts here in the Garden of Eden. Right? You get kind of into Exodus. Right? You get the promised land. The people of God are, are moving towards this land that he's promised them. Um, you, you then get to Jerusalem, right? Uh, even, even exile, Right, the, the exile, when the, the people of, we talked last week about God's discipline, even when God was disciplining his people and they ended up in exile, 
right, a, a, away from uh, Jerusalem, away from the God, place where God had originally given them. Even exile was a place, in a sense, that was prepared for God's people. Uh, and so even trace this into the New Testament, uh, into the book of Revelation, you get uh, a new Jerusalem, right? Heaven, a place created for God's people, right? So God is always and constantly, always has been and continues to prepare a place for his people. All right, but, but under that, so you've got big overarching, God prepares a place for his people, uh, but then we're going to look at kind of four sort of subpoints, right? And, and those are this. We made it really easy for you because they all start with a P, which means I'm just going to get it really confused because I, my brain functions faster than I can talk sometimes. So here's, here they are. We're going to look at presence, provision, purpose, and promise. All right? Uh, I will repeat all those again. You don't have to remember them all. But if you take notes, you know where we're going. Okay? So here's the first thing. The Garden of Eden right, is a place of presence. Right? A place of presence. So chapter 2, if you look at verses uh, 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here in kind of in this Genesis 2, you've got God communicating with man. Right? There's no explicit reference here to God's presence. Um, actually, once you get to Genesis 3, there is an explicit reference to God's presence with his people. He's walking in the garden. Uh, it says Adam and Eve could hear his footsteps. It says they tried to hide from his presence. But uh, at, at least at this point in, verse, or in chapter 2, there's no explicit reference to God's presence, but it's implied in that God is having a conversation with Adam. Or he's giving God, or God is giving Adam these, these commands. This is what is expected of you. This is what you are allowed to enjoy that I've created and, and given to you. Right? God communicates with um, communicates with. Adam, because he's present with man. The Garden of Eden is a place of God's presence. Right? God dwelling in presence and close proximity with his people. And, and we see this in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. But again, this carries all throughout the pages of Scripture. Right? We look at the different ways that God uh, dwells in proximity to his people. Right? So we got the Garden of Eden, but then as we know, there's the fall. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, so we're no longer physically in God's presence. But then God shows up on the scene and he, and he gives Moses later on in the book of uh, Exodus some instructions to build a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, he constructs this place where, uh, where the, the, the ark is supposed to be, the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence dwells among his people. Right, and that carries all throughout the Old Testament in this language of the tabernacle and the temple is this place where God's presence dwells among his people. But it, it wasn't a place where everyone could freely go in and go out. Right, it's a place reserved for the high priest and he would go in there one day a year right, into God's presence where he would uh, offer sacrifices on behalf of all of God's people. And that's kind of where God dwelled with his people in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, but then you get to the pages of the New Testament. And then God dwells with his people in the form of a man, Jesus. 
right? Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus is God's presence with his people. Once you flip to the pages of the New Testament, right? God with us, God incarnate, God wrapped in flesh. That's who Jesus is. All right, but then uh, Jesus, as we know, as we read in Scripture, he dies on the cross, he resurrects, but then he ascends to the Father. Right? And it's, then we think, oh, now Jesus, or God's presence is now removed from man, but then what does Jesus say? He says, no, it's actually good that I go, because when I go, then the helper comes, the Holy Spirit. And so now in our day and time, it's the Holy Spirit that is God's presence with his people. Right? If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, you have God's Spirit living inside of you. And it's easy for us to look at Moses and, and some of the, the people in the Old Testament and think, oh man, they, they heard from God, right? They, they had conversations with God. And I think Moses would, would look at us and be jealous of us because we have the Spirit of God living inside of us, the presence of God dwelling in and among his people. Right? But, but again, that's still not the whole story because, again, one day there's going to be a day when we live in God's presence again, right, in the, the new Jerusalem. This is um, Revelation chapter 21. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screens. But, but listen, listen to this. This is John's account. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and listen to this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So what we see in Genesis, God dwelling with man, one day that's going to happen again. Right, God dwelling with man in the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation. Right, this, is what, this is what all of creation is moving towards. Right, God once again dwelling in, in close proximity and presence with his people. So the garden is a place of presence. But then the other thing we see is the garden is a place of provision. So again, back in Genesis 2, if you look at verses 8 and 9, it says... And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God creates, you read back through Genesis 1, God creates all the, the plants and the animals and, and all these things. All of creation, he plants a garden, he puts man in the middle of his creation, and he basically says, here, enjoy. Right? All of his creation, he, he hands it over to man and says, here, I want you to enjoy. Right? And, and part of verse 9, kind of the phrase there, he says that, uh, that God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Right? So that... that Phrase there, good for food, pleasant for sight. It's just this, right? You got God providing, yes, what they need to survive, right? Food to eat, to sustain them. God provides what they need to actually live, okay? But then even above and beyond that, he says that he provides what is pleasant to the sight. 
So not only does God provide what is good for them, uh, what they need to like, live and, and to be sustained, but God provides like, for their enjoyment. Right? It's not just so that they would be able to, to survive and make it, but God actually provides so that they would be able to enjoy his creation. Right? And so I think kind of some things for us to consider in that right, is that when God provided, man didn't earn it. Right? God takes the first steps here. Right? Like 12 minutes ago, Adam didn't exist. So he's done nothing to earn this, right? God, out of the goodness and kindness and generosity of who he is, creates all of this and gives it to Adam and says, here, take and enjoy. It's good for food and it's good for uh, just your, your pleasure, your sight. It's, it's to be enjoyed. I give it to you to enjoy. So, so man didn't earn it. God provided it out of the good, gracious kindness uh, of, his, of his generous heart. And what was true for Adam is true for us. Every good thing that you have and that you enjoy comes to you from God. That's true if you are a believer in Jesus. That's true if you're not a believer. God, a generous God, even if you're you're not a Christian, you out of his common grace, God gives and provides what you need. And even beyond that, things for your enjoyment. Right? Every good thing that you have and that I have for our enjoyment, for, our, uh, for our, our just sustaining us, it comes from God. Right? Every opportunity that you have, uh, every uh, dollar in your bank account, every resource at your disposal, right? every relationship that is uh, good, that you enjoy, all of that is a gift from a kind, gracious, loving, generous, heavenly Father. So I, I just think like that should, kind of the narrative I think sometimes is that God is stingy, right? That he like withholds uh, things for us to enjoy. At least that's the culture like in narrative, like people that, that are kind of, I mean, how can you worship a God that's so restrictive and doesn't allow you to do this or doesn't allow you to enjoy that? And I just think the Garden of Eden reminds us that that God is anything but stingy and restrictive. Right? He creates all this that is good and gives it to Adam. He says, take and enjoy. And he only has one command. Right? Like, now, we know the story. Right? It's like the big red button when somebody says, hey, don't push the, you can do it. Whatever you want, just don't push the big red button. And what do Adam and Eve do? They push the big red button. Right? But, but God still, he's, he's generous. He gives all of this. It says, take and enjoy. Right? He is a God who, who provides the, the garden as a place of provision. Okay? But it's also a place of purpose. Look at verse 15, chapter 2. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Right? So um, sometimes we think of work as a bad thing, right? We're looking forward to heaven. We're like, I don't have to do any work anymore. And I'm just going to tell you, you're probably going to have to do work in heaven. Because before the fall, there was work, which means work is a good thing, right? I mean, now, work will be different in heaven. It won't, be, uh, it won't be toil, like he talks about later in chapter three, but 
Right? Work is a good thing. So when God creates the garden, gives it over to man, he puts man in it to work it and to keep it. Man's purpose is to cultivate it. Right? And we look back at, uh, even if you look back at, at chapter 1, verse 28, it says that uh, when God puts a man and woman there, he says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, so there's a purpose in the garden. Right? It's to, yes, to work and to keep and to steward and to care for God's creation, but it's also to, uh, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to exercise dominion over it. Right? The garden is a place of purpose. Right? Man had a purpose in the garden. He wasn't just kind of like randomly there trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do now? Okay? He's there for a purpose. And we, for us, fast forward. We're obviously not in the garden anymore. But yet there's still a purpose for us in the places that God puts us. Right? And so it's to, to be fruitful and to multiply. And may, maybe that means your family, yes, for some of you, but for all of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, what that does mean is, is we want to grow the family of God. We want to multiply. We want to make disciples. We want to advance God's kingdom in the places and spaces that he's put us. Right? One of my favorite passages of scripture, I, I use it all the time. I reference it all the time. Uh, if you guys stick around and listen to me preach, you're going to hear me uh, reference it a lot more. But it's Acts chapter 17. Read these, these few verses for you, verses 24 through 27. Uh, and I think even in these, we see some of the stuff we're talking about. It says, the, the God who made the world and everything in it. Sorry, so we got the God who creates. This is what we're talking about in Genesis 1 and 2. Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Again, his presence in us, right? Holy Spirit. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Right, this is the God who provides. Verse 26. This is the part I love. And he made from one man every nation of, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from us. You are where you are because God put you there. It's not an accident. It is not a coincidence. As the people of God, we don't believe in coincidences. We believe that God is sovereign and he's always at work. He always has his, his purposes. Even, even when we don't understand him, why don't we look God is at work? And so if we would believe this, right, that, that it's God who determined that you would be where you are at this point in time, and that was by his design. Right, so that the home that you're a part of, you're there because God wants you there. The neighborhood that you live in, you're there because God has placed you there. The place where you work and the, the people you work with, you are there because God has put you there among those people. You are at Valley Creek because this is where God has put you. And, and listen, can we just, let's have a family talk for a second. Um, 
some of you guys over the last couple of years. It's um, you, you, if I'm understanding this right, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. But when you started to, uh, committed to start this work here on kind of the, the north side of town, some of you guys made a commitment. You're going to come over here and see it through. And it, you've been through it the last couple of years. It's been a tough couple of years. And maybe there's been those urges in you to be like, oh, maybe we should go back to the other campus. Oh, it's kind of tough here. And, and you've stuck it out. And what I'm saying is it's not by accident that you've stuck it out. Right? You are here in this place, in this community, because it's where God has put you for such a time as this. Right? For me, it is not by accident, it is not by coincidence that I was looking for a ministry position last fall. And, and of all the interviews that I did and all the resumes that I sent out, it is not by coincidence that I ended up here at Valley Creek, at South Wilson. Right? So, that, so that, man, this is where God has put us together so that we might do what he says here, that we might grow the family of God that we might make, be fruitful and multiply, make disciples, advance the kingdom so that the men and women here in this community and the surrounding communities would be able to join us in the promise that awaits us, the living hope that we just sang about. Right? And if, if we would get this, right? if we would believe this, that God has put us uh, here on purpose, for a purpose, like it would change the way that we, it would change the way we looked at our neighborhoods, right? It would change the way that we looked at our coworkers. It would change the way that we look at this community if we really believe that this is where God has put us for such a time as this. It would change us. It would change the way that we, right? We're no longer just sort of going through life sort of mundane, just trying to get through the end of the day, right? We would realize we're, we're here on, on purpose, for a purpose, to make Jesus known, right? And it's the garden that reminds us that, that God places us where he places us on purpose, for a purpose. And then here's the last thing. So the garden is a place of God's presence. It's a place of his provision, a place of his purpose. And here's the fourth one. It's a place of promise. The garden is a place of promise. So it is impossible to preach in Genesis, um, kind of the creation narrative, Genesis 1 through 3, without acknowledging the reality that, that it's broken right, because of the fall. So just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page, here's what happens. God creates everything, hands it over to Adam and Eve, gives it to them, says, here, take, enjoy. By the way, here's one command that I ask of you. And what I said, the big red button, what did Adam and Eve do? Push the big red button. Right, you've got the serpent shows up to Eve, and he, the serpent begins to distort and twist God's word right, to make God seem restrictive, to make God seem untrustworthy. And Eve believes that lie, and then she takes the fruit, she eats, she gives it to her husband. It says that when they do that, their, their eyes were opened. Right, they, they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed all of a sudden and then they they take what what God had provided for them to enjoy 
for food, what was good for sight, what was good for pleasure, what, what God had taken, uh, what God had given them for those purposes, they then take to try and provide coverings for themselves because all of a sudden they know that something's wrong. And then you get them hiding in, in the garden right, from God's presence, which, by the way, is just foolish, right? right to try and hide from God in, in the, what he created. It's like when my kids, we play hide-and-seek sometimes, uh, and they think that if they can't see me, that I can't see them, right? Like, they're going to hide under the covers despite the fact that the bottom half of their body is sticking out from under the covers. <laughs> this is kind of what Adam and Eve are doing here in the garden. They think, we don't want God to know what we've done. Let's hide from him in what he created. All right, and then God pursues them. Right, and he, he pursues them even in their brokenness and even in their sin. He pronounces judgment on them. Right, because of their sin, now all of a sudden there's pain, which didn't exist before. There's suffering, which didn't exist before. There's tension, which didn't exist before. And ultimately, there will be death and separation from God, which were not meant to exist before the fall. All that comes in. And so in the, the darkest moment of human history where sin enters the world, as dark as that is, there's still this glimmer of hope. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, here's what God's pronouncing judgment on uh, on the serpent, on Adam and Eve. Here he's, he's talking specifically to the serpent. He says this, I will put enmity or, or tension between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. But then he, the language changes. He goes from talking about um, plural, right? Offspring plural. To, all of a sudden he changes his language to talk about one specific offspring, he says, he shall bruise your head. Talking to the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, so in this moment when God's pronouncing judgment on the serpent, on Adam and Eve, there's this glimmer of hope because what, what God is saying is that one day there's going to there's come a day. There's going to be all this tension between uh, Satan and between uh, the offspring of, of man and woman. But one day there's coming a day when one specific offspring, one specific man born of a woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And he says, he says you, you shall bruise his heel. You're, you're going to inflict some pain on him, but he's going to bruise, or I love what the other, I think other translations say crush. You're going to inflict some pain on him, but he's ultimately going to crush your head. He's going to defeat you. Talking to the serpent. Right, and, and, and what scholars say, like this is kind of like the, the, basically the first preaching of the gospel in a sense, in all of the Bible. As early as Genesis 3, right? In, in my Bible, that is about, um, about two inches from where sin entered the world, all of a sudden there's an answer for sin. And we know that to be Jesus. And then another bit of foreshadowing right before if you look at the end of, of chapter 3, uh, I'm not going to read it, but because of their sin, because of the penalty of separation from God, God drives them out of the garden. 
but not before he, he offers them some covering. Right? And he, he takes their feeble attempts to cover themselves, to cover their own shame and to cover their own sin. He takes their feeble efforts and it says that he sacrifices an animal and gives them a better covering. So between the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, between this, this covering that God provides, what we have here is, is this reminder that Genesis, I'm sorry, that the garden is a place of promise. Because what these do, they, they, they point us to Jesus. All right, Jesus is the one who would, who would come, who would live the perfect life that, that Adam did not live, who would ultimately be crucified on the cross. Remember what it said that the, the serpent or the enemy, he might, call, he might inflict some harm, but ultimately the offspring would, would crush the head of the serpent. This is what happens on the cross. Right? Jesus, is, he, he incurs pain and torment and suffering, and yet in that, he crushes the head of the serpent. All right, it's, it's Jesus who is kind of hinted at here in the garden that thousands of years later would be arrested in a garden, betrayed in a garden, but then ultimately crucified and raised to life right, to reverse the curse that, that comes into the world here in Genesis 3. And just as Adam and Eve were covered by the, uh, by the sacrifice, by the, the, the animal that was sacrificed by God in the garden before he sent them out, right, just, just as they were covered, we are covered by the sacrifice that God provided, Jesus. So that we don't have to try and cover our own sin and cover our own shame. God has provided that for us in the person and work of Jesus. Right? And this Jesus, to circle back around to where we started, also prepares a place for us. Right, look with me, uh, if, if you will, in John chapter 14. These are the words of Jesus, verses 1 through 3. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Listen, this is what Jesus is doing for us now in this moment. He's preparing a place for his people. Just as God in, in Genesis, in, gar, in the garden, prepares a place for his people, we see this in Jesus right now, preparing a place for his people. It's a place of God's presence, where all those who have trusted, repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus will one day enjoy full presence, physical presence of God in close proximity to him. Remember the, the passage we read in Revelation earlier, the dwelling place of God will be with man. It's a place of presence, the, the place that Jesus prepares for us. It's a place of provision, right, where, where God will provide for us, right, Pleasures forevermore, the fullness of joy provided for his people in heaven. This place that, that Jesus is right now preparing for, for us. It's a place of purpose. It's a place where we will worship God and enjoy him forever. 
And yes, we will be given some sort of work, some sort of, of, uh, uh, of, of task to do in heaven. But it won't be toil, it won't be labor, it will be joyful work. All right, we're given a purpose. And then this place that, that Jesus is preparing for us is promised. It's promised to all who would trust in him. To all who would turn from their sin, put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, for the hope of eternal life. And an invitation to this place has been given to all of us here this morning. If you would repent and believe, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus. If you've never, if you've never done that this morning, I would just invite you into that. Right? The invitation is, is for you into this place that is being prepared for those who love Jesus. All right, would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. And we are, Lord, grateful for, um, for your love for us. Grateful that you, what the garden teaches, Lord, that you have, you've provided a place for us. That you have prepared a place for us. That, uh, Lord, that, that for those who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, for the hope of eternal life, that, that we have been invited into that place. And so, Father, for those of us this morning, that, that there's been a time where we have, we've surrendered our lives to Jesus. May we, may we live, walk out of this place later today, just being encouraged by the reality that, that we have a, a hope, a promise, that, that what was true in the garden will one day be true again, that we will live in your presence Lord, without any separation, without any sin, without any suffering, without any, uh, without, without any of those things, Lord, just enjoyment and pleasure and joy forever in your presence. And then, Father, maybe there's some here this morning who have never trusted in you. Maybe they're trusting in themselves, their own, their own good behavior, their own good track record, their own church attendance, the their own family history. Lord, may we see that, that trusting in those things will, will, never, will never get us into this place that you've prepared for us. It's only through Jesus, the way and the truth and the life, and that none of us get to the Father but through him. So Father, if there's someone here this morning that's never put their trust in you, I pray that you would pull at the strings of their heart that they would surrender their lives to you this morning so that they would be able to enjoy the place that you've prepared. So Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.